So fun to be with you guys this morning. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles and make your way over to Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. Romans uh, is in the back third of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you find the book of Acts. Then you will find the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. Last week, we took a little break from that because we launched World Vision, and Liz was back, and I heard she knocked it out of the park. Really, really grateful for her to uh, come and help us launch World Vision and to be running the Rock and Roll Marathon together this year. It's going to be awesome. Uh, actually, it's not the Rock and Roll, it's the San Antonio Marathon. And so uh, really, really grateful that you said yes, and we're all going to be doing that journey together. But today we're going to be back in the book of Romans. Romans is probably some of the most theologically rich book in all of the scripture. It is probably where we get the clearest picture of exactly what the gospel is and the power that it contains for everyday normal, everyday life. And so a couple of weeks ago, we ended the first part of chapter six, and we said one thing. We said, you're dead. You are dead to sin, that you, um, because Christ has come in and broke the power of sin and death, you and I can no longer return to our old life and habitually and continually give ourselves over to sin. If you and I are willingly and purposefully walking in sin, it's still, Paul would say, do you know what lordship is? Maybe you've missed it because when Jesus comes in and gets a hold of you, he changes everything. And he literally means everything, even the parts of our lives that are secret, that we don't like to talk about, that are painful, even those got to go. And so that's where we left off last week, but Paul, or two weeks ago, but Paul also knows this to be true that the Christian journey is hard, that following Christ is, um, it's, it's just that it is a journey. And over the next few chapters, you're going to see that, yes, the power of sin has been broken forever in your life. And as you will see, Paul, even as the probably the highest spiritual authority on planet Earth at his time, as an apostle, still battles with what he calls is the flesh how he still battles with, I know the things that God is calling me to do, but my flesh is pulling me away. It is constantly at work or at war against me. And so in this chapter, he's going to ask a question that I believe all of us have sincerely asked before. If Christ has come in and the power of the erection has broken forever the sin's control in my life, why do I struggle so much with sin still? Why do I feel myself drawn towards my old life still? Why do I still feel attracted to those things? Why am I so stingy? Why am I so hot-tempered all the time? Why is it not natural for me to give God more and more and more of my affections? And that's where Paul is going to be rolling out this morning. You'll see as we get into verse 17 in a second, Paul is not just talking to, uh, he's not talking to people that are like one foot in and one foot out. He's talking to people that are like, man, I want all that God has in store for me. I, I, I want to follow him. And so you're going to see probably some of the most 
intimate side of Paul where he really pulls back the curtains about, man, I know who God is. The power of sin has been broken in my life. Why am I so still struggling with the same old stuff year after year, day after day? Don't you wonder that about yourself? Don't you wonder like, man, I've been at this thing for a really long time. I thought I would be a little bit further down the road by now. Don't you wonder that about yourself where you're like, man, why am I attracted to that? Why is it so hard for me to keep forgiving? Why is it so hard for God to have all of my, don't you wonder that about yourself? I mean, I wonder that about you guys, right? I'm just kidding. But that's because I only, I wonder that about myself, that that is the story of my life. And if you are a follower of Christ and you are frustrated maybe at where you are in your journey, I think Paul, Paul's words are going to be really encouraging for us this morning. And he's going to really talk to us about this battle on the inside where we are torn with, with the calling and the reality of what God has done, and yet also wrestling with our old self about how do we, is that stuff still keep holding on to me, or I'm still talking and wrestling with the same stuff I've been dealing with forever. And there's one question that Paul wants us to run at this morning, and it's a really big one. How do I change? Really? Like if, if Jesus has come in and he's broken the power of sin in my life forever, how do I begin to change? How do I begin to let that reality transform who I am? And it's a question that I'm sure that if you're like me, all of us have to ask, how do I really change? Because I don't want to just be about behavior modification. I don't want to just change my behavior and think that I'm good. I want to actually change what does that process actually look like? And Paul is going to say to us this morning that that fundamentally starts with not just a, a behavior modification, but it starts with an identity. It starts with taking on a new identity. And so this morning, uh, uh, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor here in this community is I love to do weddings. It's really fun for me. Um, I did a wedding for a girl in our community that started with us when she was in sixth grade. Sixth grade, came all the way through middle school, came up through our high school program. She taught here on Sunday morning on Senior Sunday, went off to school, fell in love, met this guy, and their wedding was uh, three weeks ago, and it was so much fun. Listen to this. Lord, help their parents because their her older sister is getting married next month. That's two weddings in two months. Poor dad, poor mom and dad. But there is this moment um, during the wedding where I know that I'm about to break the dad's heart, where the daughter and the dad are walking down the aisle and the fiance standing in front of me and the dad is walking to me and I make this declaration about now I ask who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the dad musters up every bit of strength he has, and he says, her mother and I do. And he hands her over to this punk of a man standing there, right? And so they join hands. I say a few words over them, and by the end of it, um, I make this declaration of that there is now forever one standing in front of us, that this is a new identity, new relationship, and established a new family. Question, is she the same girl that she walked in uh, when she walked in? Is she still the same person? I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's no difference except there is a new identity that has been established. 
And Paul is going to say the same thing about us. That's where change ultimately has to start. Not in your just your behavior modification, but that your identity has changed, that you have walked down the aisle, if you will, and you have forever been united to somebody. And because of that, everything in your life changes because of this new identity and new relationship that you have found yourself in. It's not just about behavior modification. It's about adopting a new identity. And Paul is going to say, if you want that to be a reality, it's really a simple. It's just a two-step process. Just two things you got to do. And they're big ones, but it's really simple. There's just two things this morning, and that's what we're going to be running at. So if you are visiting or new to our community Um, We say the Shema on Sunday morning. Shema uh, is not a word we just made up. It simply means to listen or to hear. Um, It's a a prayer uh, and a declaration that's found in the Older Testament as well in the Newer Testament when Jesus says, when some of the followers of Jesus ask what the greatest commandment is, Jesus quotes part of the Shema. And so on Sunday mornings, we say the Shema here as a way to prepare our hearts to receive God's words. It's just a fun family tradition around here. We say just the first two lines in Hebrew, that's the language that Jesus would have known it and understood it in. And so we think it's powerful to have his words on our lips in the original language as a way for us to really simply say, God, we're listening. We want whatever you want for us this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand and say the Shema with us this morning as we prepare ourselves to dig into God's words. Let's say the Shema together. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And so God, as always, God, as we read your scripture, may it read us as well. God, may we see things we've never seen before, God, so that we can do things we've never done before. God, may the power of the resurrection be real inside of us this morning. And so we offer ourselves fully and openly to you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, brothers, sisters, Romans 6 verse 11 is where we're going to be. And so it will also be up on their screens. We've also created a bunch of uh, resources for you. So if you don't have your Bible, you can open up the Bible app on your phone. If you have that, and you can click the three little lines on the right side of the app, and you type in Riverside's name, and all of the slides will pull up. All of my notes from this morning will be there as well. And then you can just simply email that to yourself later today if you want to go back and read what we talked about or refresh what we talked about. So please take advantage of those resources, but it will also be up on the screen, okay? Verse 11, here we go. In the same way, here's step one right here, count. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. To really change, you, it's fundamentally about an identity shift that has to happen inside of you. That you and I have to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to him. This word count right here is a word that you have seen before uh, in Romans chapter 4. You could also translate it credit. 
Uh, do you remember this word? We said the Greek word for credit is logizomai. It means uh, to credit somebody's account. If I went to the bank and I wanted to leave everything I had to my two girls, I would go down there and I would logizomai my account to my daughter's account. And suddenly her bank account would go from like $0 up to whatever was in my bank account. That is the idea that, that Paul is talking about here. You have to count, credit yourself as dead to sin. Now, that's what we do, we do is that we count ourselves dead to sin and then Christ counts us as righteousness. So it's not just a one-way street. It flows both ways. Christ counts us as righteous or have been justified. Justifying mean that not only have we been forgiven, but justification takes it one step further and says, not only have you been forgiven, but now when Christ looks at you, he's like, where is it? I don't see it anymore. Where's your sin? Now when he looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ living inside of you. It's not just about forgiveness, but it's about holiness. And so that is the idea of justification. And so just as we believed our way into justification, Paul is going to say, as you count yourself now righteous, now you need to count yourself as dead. You have to die to sin. Um, it's that fundamental fundamental way of of understanding your newfound reality between the relationship between you and Christ. And so now Christ looks at me. I, I receive justification through faith, right? I believe that, and God declares that over me. And now Paul is going to say, you got to take it a step farther if you want to change. Now, just as you believed your way so that you received um, the gift of salvation, now you believe your way into a fancy church word called sanctification. Sanctification is really, really simple, a big word, but really simple meaning. It just means the process of you becoming more and more like Christ, that more and more of your life begins being turned over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Me and Christy have been married 17 years, and when we were 25 and 22, we went before our friends and a pastor, and we got married, and we were married. Now, Am I still married today? Yes. Am I any more married today? Absolutely not. But in our relationship, we've grown in our depth and our love and our affection for one another. That is sanctification. It's the process of growing in your relationship with Christ. And Paul says, just as you um, believed your way into justification, this relationship. Now you believe your way into strengthening that relationship. And here is maybe what that looks like. We don't pull up our bootstraps. We don't white knuckle it. We don't, um, we don't have to grit and grind our teeth. This thing that we follow, the relationship that we have with Christ is a believing thing. Just as we believed our way into it, we're going to believe our way into true change. And so there's this pattern that begins to unfold, and it looks like this. Go to the next slide. When you put your faith in Christ as your sin bearer, God counts or logizomize your faith as righteousness, right? Forgiven and declared holy. And now as you count yourself dead to sin, God does the unthinkable and the unimaginable that should get us all out of our seats cheering. But he, when you count yourself dead to sin, now God infuses the did I just do the power pose? Like infuses into us the power of new life. Like infuses us the resurrection power to change. Next part of it flows like this. Go to the next slide. 
And so just as we believed our way into justification, now we believe our way into the power of sanctification or the, we believe our way into the power to grow in our relationship with Christ. You have to fundamentally understand this. This relationship that we have with Christ is based on believing. It's not just this uh, um, feeling that we have, but it is a believing thing that we align our thoughts and our hearts and our affections with the reality of what Christ has said. There are things that are true whether you believe them or not, and we believe our way into them. And so we, when we, if we want to have the power to change, we believe that God counts us as dead to sin, but alive to him. And we, God, when we do that, he releases the power of new life that will flow inside of you. But the problem is you and I, so many of us walk around and we say things like, but I don't feel dead to sin. Like, why is it that if, I, if that is really true, if God has released the power of the resurrection inside of me, why is my heart still tugged towards those things? Why do I still enjoy things that I know are actually painful for me or for my family? And Paul would say, you're absolutely right. I'm sure you don't feel maybe any different because this thing is not a feeling thing. It's a believing thing. You believe your way into, into it. You, uh, you believe your way into the relationship. And the way that you grow in your relationship is by also believing. It's not this um, name it and claim it thing or any type of garbage like that. But it's actual power that God releases inside of you when you align your heart and your mind to the reality of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. It's not, I'm brave enough, I'm strong enough, and gosh, dog, it people really like me. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about real resurrection power that God releases inside of you when you align yourself with the reality that you are dead, that you have died to sin. If you remember in chapter four uh, is a story of Abraham. And uh, God comes to Abraham when he is 90 years old. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be a father. And you know what Abraham did not do? He did not say, oh, that's right. I've been feeling pretty frisky these days. And so I am going to be a father. She's looking pretty good. That's not what happened. He didn't feel his way into that belief, right? He believed his way into that feeling. And yet so many of us, when it comes to walking this thing out, we place the reality of our feelings above everything else. And Paul would say to us this morning, absolutely not. This is not a feeling thing. This is a believing thing. It's a believing thing. Or you might be able to say it this way. You don't feel your way into your beliefs. You believe your way into your feelings. For you and for I, I'm so, like, don't those feel really backwards to us? Where we are people that are like, I just want that tingling on the back of my neck right now so that I know that it's the Lord. And Paul is saying, nope. Oftentimes, when in our relationship with Christ, it's about believing first and then allowing our feelings to catch up. When you believe and you align yourself with the reality of, of that you have been counted dead to sin and alive to Christ, he releases the power to ultimately change in your life. It's absolutely powerful. You see, I can walk around every day of my life and say things like, I'm never going to change Things in my marriage are always going to be this way. 
Like, I'm always going to struggle with alcohol. I'm always going to struggle with pornography. I'm always going to struggle with money. I'm all, and you know what happens when you align yourself with that? You struggle with those things. And it's not rocket science. But when you align yourself to the reality, no, this is a dead thing. I'm dead to those things now, and I'm alive to Christ so that no matter what is in front of me is not greater than the cross behind me, and so I can face whatever temptation comes my way. Do you remember when Jesus started his public ministry? Uh, He was taken out into the desert, uh, and he was tested. And there's this funny little phrase that is said over and over and over again. The devil says to him, if you really are the son of God, He says that three different times. It's a funny little phrase. Do you ever wonder why he says that is? Why does he say, if you are the son of God? What's he trying to move Jesus off of? What just happened right before this story? The baptism of Christ, where he heard a voice from heaven, God's father say, this is my son who I'm well loved and I'm well pleased. And now what's the first temptation right after that? Did God really say that about you? Did God really give you a new identity? Did God really say those things? Is that really true? Do you know when I get myself into trouble? Is when I move off of that. I'm a beloved child that has the favor of God and the resurrection power living inside of me. When I move off of that, I open the door for every other type of sin to come into my life. This is not about sin management. This is about identity management. Does that make sense? So it's, it's this total thing that where if we can move off of our identity about what God has declared over us, then he can open the door for sin in us. So what do we do? We align ourselves to the reality of what Christ has done. And what Christ has done is he says, you, my friends, are good and dead. You're dead to sin. It no longer rules and reigns over you. So count count. That is the first step to real change. It's aligning with the reality of what God has actually said about you. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Um, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not, here's the second thing for real change to happen. Do not offer, here's the second part, do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, here it is again, Offer yourself to God to those who have been bought, brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself as an instrument to righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that now that Christ has the seat of your heart, nothing can get into the, to the place of the seat of your heart because that place is already spoken for and it belongs to Christ. So that sin, before you were a follower of Christ, it's, it's you couldn't do anything other than sin because you were at the seat of your life. But now, if you're a follower of Christ, Christ comes in and he takes up residency and occupies that place, that, that seat of your life. And so that place is now occupied by Christ. And so there is no sin in the main seat of your life. It cannot drive you. It cannot... Um, uh, it, it has no power over you anymore. And so Paul says, what are you going to do about that? If the seat of your life is spoken for by Christ, you have an opportunity. You can either offer yourself to sin or you can offer yourself to Christ. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we keep sinning because we're not under the law, but under grace? That's crazy by no means. Don't you know that when you, here it is again, 
Offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves. You are a slave of the one who you obey. Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so what Paul is saying is that even though Christ is now at the seat of your heart, you have an opportunity. You have to decide which master you want to obey because sin is always on the move and is always wants to occupy and take back that prominent seat where Christ now resides in you. He is a predator that is on the move that is always attacking. It might help you to think about it this way. Next slide. Um, So back in World War II, um, when the Allied forces uh, took control over Berlin, um, essentially the Nazi war machine Uh, the back was broken of them. They were ultimately defeated. Uh, Their supply chains got cut off. No more communication. No more leadership was uh, established because the Allied troops came and they took back over uh, Berlin. But at the same time, all throughout the region of France and of Germany, there were these little skirmishes of Nazis that decided not to surrender. And so these little band of Nazis decided to still wage war and to wreak havoc and to terrorize the people of the towns. Even though the battle had been defeated, there were still all of these little skirmishes going on. And Paul says, yep, that's right. That's exactly what it's like. Even though Christ has come in and take the seat of authority in your life, there are all of these little skirmishes in our lives that can, be, that can break out. Yes, the power of sin has forever been destroyed and broken, but there are still all of these little battles inside of us that are waging war. And sin is always at looking to take back the seat of authority in your life. Sin is never neutral. It is always on the move. It is always a predator. It is, it is always a big deal. There is no such thing as like, man, it's just this little thing that I've got managed. I can like, it's not that big a deal. It's not really hurting anybody. It is because it's about your identity. It's about what God has said and declared over you. And if you look back in verse 16, it says, any other master than Christ is always going to lead to a life of slavery and oppression. Now, listen, y'all, I love Texas for a whole lot of different reasons. I mean, we do it up and we do it right. And particularly, uh, maybe in one area, um, do you know that more Texans have this one particular kind of pet, then the actual pet exists in the wild in that native country. Did you know that? Do you know what kind of animal that is? Go ahead. Tiger. Did you know there are more tigers in captivity as pets in Texas than there are in the wild in India? Did you know that? First of all, that's pretty dang awesome, right? When you start rolling in the money, you're like, you know what I need to get? I need to get me a tiger. That's going to be awesome. That's the pet that I need. And so there are more uh, tigers in captivity here in Texas than all of the wild in India, which is pretty dang awesome, right? Uh, Until you start seeing things pop up in the news every now and then, right? You see the same story play out over and over and over again. You'll see the headline that says things like this. Texas man 
mauled by tiger. And you're like, well, no kidding. He's mauled by a tiger. And the headline or the story always reads the exact same every single time. Um, Fluffy was this cute little pet and he was a, such a sweet little boy. I have no idea why he attacked. And you start reading the article and it's like, but Fluffy was this sweet domesticated little cat and the owner and him always or her always had such a great relationship. You could see they just loved each other until one day he just mauled her face off, right? And there's a couple problems with that. First of all, it's a cat. And no cat should ever be trusted, right? Because cats are freaking horrible. And number two, and number two is Fluffy is a predator. You cannot escape who he is. Even if you try to domesticate that cat, at some point, he's going to maul you to death because Fluffy is a predator. He's, there's no such thing as a domesticated tiger. It's in the DNA. It's what it does. It's who it is. And Paul says this, that, that's sin. Sin, brothers and sisters, can never be domesticated. It can never be brought into the house and treated like this pre pretty little innocent thing. And it's just this, no, Paul says to us, sin is always a predator. And today it might not get you or tomorrow or next year, but it is going to, you're playing with a dangerous tiger. And one day that thing is going to maul your stinking face off. And so sin is always looking to take mastery over you. Now, what's funny about that is when I say like sin wants to be your master, the truth is whenever I um, sin or whenever I, you know, whenever you're sinning or whatever, it sure doesn't feel like anything's mastery over you, does it? It actually feels like, no, I get to do what I want to do. <laughs> you know, this is pretty great. Um, nobody's my master. I do what I want to do. And Paul would say to us this morning, stop it. You're not thinking about it deep enough. You got to think actually deeper about that because every decision that you make, every choice that you make, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, um, whether it's a sinful choice or whether it's not, you're actually making a value statement about your life. You're actually making a value statement about your life of what do I need in life to be fulfilled? Because every choice that you and I make is actually a value statement about, is this thing going to satisfy me or not? Paul in Romans chapter one says, um, this is a worship thing because everybody's designed to worship something. So in that respect, there's no real true atheist out there in the world. There's people that acknowledge the gods they worship, and then there's people that don't acknowledge the gods they worship, right? So everybody worships something. And when we talk about worship, please, let's, let's leave behind the elementary stuff of just singing songs this morning. Worship is about us placing ultimate value to something. And so when Paul says here about... Um, uh, whatever you prescribe ultimate value to is actually the thing that you worship. And so in that respect, we are all worshipers. When I say things like, I just can't live without whatever that is. Or life would not just be worth living if I did not have that person in my life. Or life would not be worth living if my kids don't blah, 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 or fill in the blank, whatever it is. But whatever you attach ultimate value to has actually become, I mean, can we be honest, a God? Where something that is a good thing becomes a God thing, right? And uh, those are good things. But when it becomes a God thing, when it becomes your ultimate, we've made it our master. And Paul would say to us this morning, listen, you are not designed to be offering yourself 
to any other master than Christ, because every other master is a taskmaster and a life of slavery. But the life that Christ offers is a life of freedom. Best I can tell, whenever we come to, whenever it comes to sin and and talking about uh, all the different types, there's so many. Let's be honest, but I think they really only boil down to three things. I'm a pretty simple person, and I think all sin can be boiled down to just a couple of different things. First one might be approval. I just want people to like me because I attach ultimate value to the perception of what other people think about me. And so I care what I dress like. I care what I wear. I care what people think about me when I walk in the room. I care what people, how people perceive me. And I get so, so consumed with the approval of people that I just obsess about every little thing in my life, right? I know this because that's probably me because <laughs> I really struggle with wanting people to like me and I struggle with approval and something the Lord has been reminding me of um, the last couple of weeks thinking about this Sunday morning is that the approval of other people will always kill courage. It will make you a coward because when you live for all of these other voices, there's another voice that gets drowned out. And it, makes, it turns me into a coward when I bend my knee to every other voice than the voice of God in my life. Approval. Maybe control. I got to have everything my way. Listen, we have a birthday party this weekend. How many friends is she going to bring? Where are we going to go to dinner? How many kids? Are we paying for their dinner? What package are we going to buy? What kind of drink are there? That's just me, right? That's me. That was me this weekend. Control. I love to control everything. For a lot of us, it may be like you walk into your house and when the house is dirty, like you can't get comfortable because that house is dirty and so you're just uncomfortable and it's a matter of control for you. Like you have to control your environment. You have to control the things around you. You have to control your kids. You have to control your husband. You have to control your wife. You have to control what classes your kids take. You have to control what college they get into. You have to control everything. And if anything gets bumped in you, like you're going to go off. You're going to go off because they have messed with your plan, right? They have messed with your agenda. And so we lift up control as like this ultimate thing that we're living for and it becomes a slave master in our lives. Maybe lastly, uh, it could be pleasure. We're like, listen, life is short, y'all. It is so short. And so I just want to live for the good things in my life. I deserve the best. I deserve that car. I deserve that house. I deserve to retire when I want to retire. I deserve to have the finest things. I deserve to eat at the nicest places. I deserve all the pleasures that this world has to offer. And so I am going to always upgrade. Boom, boom. Everything in my life, I'm always going to upgrade. Upgrade house, upgrade car, upgrade everything because I'm living for the approval of others. Now, if you had to say one of those is you, which one would you be, which one would you say is you? Because when I think about those three, I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> that's a, that's a, those are all me. And Paul says, it's a slave master. It's seeking to enslave you. Listen to what it says. You are slaves of the one that you obey. Whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leaves to 
righteousness. Paul says everybody is going to offer themselves to somebody. If you want to really change, you count yourself dead to sin, and you don't offer yourself um, to anything other than Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 23 as we wrap it up. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so many of us might be familiar with this verse. I grew up kind of having to learn this verse when I was young. And most of the time when we read this verse, we think of it as an accumulation of like the whole gospel story. Like sin is death. uh, Jesus is life, right? Um, And I think that's an elementary reading of this scripture, of this passage, Paul would say, "Uh uh-oh, you guys got to die. We got to dig a lot deeper because there's something even more going on here. In the book of Romans, you have to understand that whenever it talks about life and death, don't think of life and death as like in the afterlife. Paul says, no, no, no. It's the here and now. And what I really think Paul is talking about here is for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Like when you offer yourself over to sin, you experience a spiritual death in the here and now. That whenever we align our thoughts, our hearts, our lives with sin, we experience this living death right now. Or you offer yourself to Christ, and it says that he offers life and life abundantly. It's not just about someday, it's about the here and now. Life and death is about the here and now. And sin, when you offer yourself to sin right now, it's this, you become this living dead thing. And Paul says, no. Offer yourself to Christ and you'll find real life. If you're serious, if you really, if you really want to change, it's really simple. It's just two things. You count yourself dead and you offer yourself to Christ. Count yourself dead. You align yourself to the reality of what God has declared over you. That you are now a favored child, that you have been engrafted in, that you are adopted, that you belong to dad, and that he is forever your father. And then you offer yourself fully and wholeheartedly to him. You run in that direction. There's a funny story, a powerful story in John chapter 11. It's the story of uh, Jesus and his best friend Lazarus. Lazarus, best I can tell, uh, has been in the grave for three days. And Jesus shows up late to the party. He shows up late. And uh, there's wailing and crying. And the scene is pretty horrific. And Jesus walks up to the tomb, heartbroken. And he says, roll the tomb away. And there's this funny little phrase in there that's, that, that often gets overlooked, but it's powerful. Jesus says, Lazarus, which just pause for a second. Do you know why he says his name? <laughs> because, the, because there's enough power in the word of God that if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody's going to get out of the tombs, right? So he says, no, 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 just Lazarus. Lazarus, 
come out. Lazarus comes out. And do you know what Jesus says to him? Take that stuff off. It doesn't fit you anymore. Take the grave cloths off. That's Romans chapter 6. That is Romans chapter 6. Take the dead clothes off. It's time to get undressed. It's it's time to take off all the sin. Those things that we read are lead to a life of slavery and oppression and ultimately a living death. It's time for us to get undressed and to leave the grave cloths on the floor because living things don't wear dead people's clothes. And that's the invitation for you and for me this morning, that there is real resurrection power available. That when God, when you believe that God counts you as righteous and you count yourself dead to sin, he infuses the power of new life inside of you, the power to change, to offer yourself up as an instrument of righteousness so that all of a sudden that old life, those grave clothes, God, they're gross and they're smelly and they're disgusting and they gots to go. And that is the invitation for you and for me this morning. There is real resurrection, real life change available for us this morning. Even for that one thing that you're like, oh, I just don't even want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. What if that one thing that you were turning away from this morning was the actual thing you began to turn into this morning? And you begin to say, no, that any temptation in front of me is not greater than the cross behind me. And so I count myself dead to sin and I offer myself right back to you this morning, Jesus. What if that was our reality for all of us? Can you imagine just the freedom and joy and life and peace that you and I would experience? Because it's not just about one day in the afterlife. Life and death is about the here and now. And Jesus has come to give life and peace now.